This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. Again, I'm the host, David Intracasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss 2016 enrollment under the ACA state exchanges or marketplaces. With me to discuss the topic is Georgetown's Center for Health Insurance Reform's Senior Research Fellow and Project Director, Sabrina Corlett. Sabrina, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a pleasure to join you today. Ms. Corlett's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. And before we begin, I'll say further that Sabrina's comments are her own. For this interview, I'll dispense with an introductory statement. I'll just note open enrollment for 2016 coverage began this past November 1st and will end January 31st, though under certain limited circumstances, individuals can for 60 days enroll beyond January 31st. So I'll limit the introduction to that comment. So let's begin with the question, Sabrina. Let's start with the enrollment numbers. How Now, although open enrollment continues, how many in- individuals are currently enrolled and what enrollment growth is expected for this coming year? Sure. So um, just last week, um, the uh, Obama administration announced that they have had 6 million people come through healthcare.gov, which is the website for the federally run marketplace, um, about a little less than half of those are brand new enrollees. Um, others, the rest are um, people who are returning and maybe switching plans, but they've been previously enrolled. Um, by the end of the open enrollment period, um, the administration is projecting that um, they should have between 11 and 14 million um, people enrolled. That's both people returning as well as as um, new people coming who who were previously uninsured. And there have for those who are let's say opposed to the law, uh, these numbers are a little bit lower than what was projected. Is that correct? Um, These numbers are actually, the 6 million was pretty good, and actually the president came out last week with a, you know, big hurrah kind of announcement, because I think they're very, very pleased with these numbers. Um, But you are correct in that, um, you know, the the Congressional Budget Office, which um, did some projections uh, earlier on, I think that they were projecting, if I remember correctly, somewhere in the neighborhood of 16 million by the end of 20. Uh, the, the, this open enrollment season. So um, the the administration has adjusted its enrollment um, projections a, a little lower, uh, to be a little lower than what CBO had projected. Um, and I think, um, and we can talk about this a little bit more when we get into, you know, conversations about premiums and the overall sort of future of the marketplaces. But um, I think generally enrollment has run lower than CBO projections. Um, and what the insurance companies are saying is that the population tends to be a little sicker than they had expected. Correct. Right. So let's do go, let's follow up on that sicker comment and go to the premium cost for 16. What do premium increases look like between 15 and 16 or year over year? And let's focus specifically on the silver plans uh, since they're the basis for the federal premium subsidy. Sure. So um, 
we're in a little bit of an environment where it's it's like pick your study because there's been um, several analyses out there um, that have looked at uh, premium changes between 2015 and 2016, um, and some of them have. You know, for example, the Urban Institute was out with one recently on silver plants saying that the rate increases averaged 3.6%. Um, Robert Wade Johnson Foundation was out last week with one saying it was around 11%. I think Kaiser Family Foundation had also around 3%. So, um, uh, and then the CMS, um, the federal agency running the marketplaces, uh, was saying, you know, in the neighborhood of 7%. So <laughs> I think the, I think averages aside, um, what we are seeing is a tremendous amount of volatility in the prices still, um, you know, between 2014 and 2015, and then here again, 2015 to 2016. And um, I think there's a, there's a couple of things going on. Um, one is that um, the initial pricing that the insurance companies uh, had to do back in 2014 and even in 2015 was very much a shot in the dark. Um, they did not; they really did not know or have good data on the kind of people who would be enrolling in their plans, or you know what their risk status was, or what kind of health care services they would be getting. Um, and so, some price very, you know, very conservatively and relatively high. Um, and those insurers, you know, some of them are actually dropping their prices or keeping them stable. But a lot of insurance companies um, priced pretty um, aggressively or, you know, to try to pick up market share. Um, and, and those are the ones where we're really seeing some pretty steep hikes um, this year as they, you know, have started to get more data on the population that they are serving. Okay. Since much of the news in um, cost increases for 2015 concerned drug pricing, right? Uh, um, so let me just ask you, relative to this year-over-year premium price growth or increases, what effect, or is it known, what effect has uh, the increase in drug pricing had on premium increases? Um, I think it's had some effect. Certainly, the issue, the insurance companies have pointed to increases in drug costs as a factor in, in why they've had to increase prices for 2016. But it's not huge. I think the, the, the biggest factor is that the, um, again, not this is uh, not universal, but for the most part, um, at least in the marketplaces, the, the population they are serving is sicker than they had expected. And there's, um, you know, a couple of different reasons for that. Um, and one of them, frankly, is um, a decision that the Obama administration made late in 2013 to um, allow people to stay on their, their pre-ACA plans. Um, and so you actually have, uh, as a result of that, um, you have just a sicker, a sicker pool uh, in the marketplaces. So, um, that's really the biggest. It, it, the The health status of the population is really the, the biggest factor behind um, the premium changes. But but drug prices are are um, uh, definitely trending up, and and the premiums are reflecting that. So relative to uh, premium increases, there's always discussion about to what extent do consumers then comparatively shop for uh, plans. There was a Kaiser study this past June yeah. 
that showed plan premium costs can shift substantially year over year, which as you just suggested, that is to suggest individuals should be active consumers, but uh, research shows largely they're not. Uh, what does the evidence tell us about uh, are they becoming more uh, active consumers in their purchasing decisions? And if they're not, why are they not? Yeah, so we have, it's interesting. I mean, historically, you're absolutely right. Um, consumers have ten, tended not to be active shoppers when during open enrollment season. So whether you're an employer-based plan or a Medicare Advantage or Medicare Part D, um, the, 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 the historical research has shown that people tend to stay put. Um, they don't particularly enjoy shopping and comparing health plans, um, and and they t even if it's not the best decision for them, either health-wise or financially, they just tend to stay with what they have. So, for example, plan switching among people with employer-sponsored coverage is usually less than 3%, um, a little bit higher, say, for example, with Medicare Part D, where plan switching has been about 13% of enrollees. Compare that to the marketplaces, um, where last year um, 31% of um, enrollees switched to a new plan. Um, and, and one of the biggest reasons for that, which you alluded to, David, is the, the fact that you're, you've got a majority of people getting a premium subsidy from the government. It's a, about 85% of enrollees are getting a subsidized plan. But um, that subsidy is pegged to um, a benchmark plan, which is the second lowest cost silver plan in their market. Um, that the cost of that plan shifts year to year. I mean, we just talked about how there's been a lot of volatility in premiums. Well, when the price of the benchmark plan changes, that can dramatically change the value of the premium tax credit that enrollees are getting. So um, what we saw last year that I think was kind of interesting is that there were actually a fair number of people that were um, automatically re-enrolled into a plan, but when they got their January premium statement, I think there was a, a, some sticker shock, and they said, whoa, wait a minute, I'm not getting the same bang for my buck I was last year. I better jump back in and start shopping around to see if I can get a, a, a plan that let, allows me to maximize my subsidy. And beyond the problem for the consumer not getting the most cost-efficient plan, it doesn't put pressure on the insurance companies to offer more price competitive if they know the consumer is not actively consuming. Right. I mean, the, the intent of the law absolutely was to try to get the insurance companies to compete on price. And if you can offer that second lowest cost or a low cost silver plan, um, you can be very, very competitive as an insurance company. But But you're right. That is totally dependent on consumers' shopping and, and trying to pick the best option for them. If they, um, you know, say if, if this year it turns out that the, you know, last year was an anomaly and people don't shop around and this year it's a much smaller number that switch, um, then that sort of defeats the goal, which is, is to try to get the carriers to compete uh, uh, aggressively on price. Let's stay with this theme and let me ask you about this year or tw going into 2016, the the fine becomes more serious. So there is, what is the estimated number of individuals choosing to remain uninsured without a credible reason? Um, then the question is, why do these individuals choose not to enroll 
uh, what's the research on that? And then if you could just note what the what is the financial penalty uh, if you fall under the individual mandate but you don't purchase a plan. Sure. So um, I think the latest estimates are that there's a little more than 10 million people who are uninsured, uh, who remain uninsured, who would be eligible for um, a, a marketplace plan. So as you know, David, there's a, there's a fair number of folks out there who are not eligible to buy a marketplace plan at any price because they're they're not legal residents. Um, and but but among the people who would be eligible, I think the estimates are there's about ten million left um, who are not yet insured. And the number one reason that they say that they are uninsured is is affordability. Um, that they don't think that they can afford it. Um, Certainly early on, uh, it sounds like there was there was just a lot of misinformation or lack of information about the fact that you could get subsidies uh, that would help make the coverage more affordable. Um, I think a word is spreading about th- that and um, that there, there may be affordable plans for a lot of folks. But even with the subsidies, there are still a lot of uninsured who say, you know what, it's just it's just too much. I can't swing it with my monthly budget. Um, so that really is the number one reason why people are going without coverage. Um, in terms of the um, the individual mandate penalty, or as they say, the individual shared responsibility payment, uh, I think is how they call it, uh, the, the, the feds, feds call it, um, that is going up for 2016. So if you are uninsured in 2016, you will have to pay the higher of $695 per adult for 2.5% of your household income. So it actually, you know, that's a pretty big bite out of um, uh, somebody's take-home pay. Um, and uh, I think that um, more than last year, the marketplace has emphasized the penalty in their marketing and outreach. Um, so that could bring some more people in who were previously uninsured. Okay. Let's go to the uh, the carrier, to use your word, uh, side of the equation, or the insurer's participation. Yeah. To what extent are uh, carriers participating? You'll recall, of course, there was big news. Of course, people speculated, actually, what did it mean? But a couple of weeks ago, you know, a health group suggested that they might not participate in 17. But what's your understanding of current insurer participation? So if you look at sort of the macro level or, um, you know, across all the states, um, in general, insurance company participation is remaining stable between the federal and the state-based marketplaces. Um, but as you point out, um, I think there are, well, first of all, there were a number of um, co-op plans, um, these uh, nonprofit uh, consumer-run plans that were created out of the Affordable Care Act. Um, Twelve of them closed their doors, uh, and then there's a handful of others that have left the market for 2016. But then there were others coming in, um, and they sort of offset those losses. So it's it's on the whole fairly stable, but um, I think that it is um, this is certainly a, a market to watch because it has been tumultuous. Um, many insurance companies have been hurt um, by what, as I said, lower than expected, uh, I'm sorry, higher than expected um, healthcare costs. Um, and then, of course, they were hit by um, 
uh, this is going to start to get a little technical, but they they had been told under the law to expect um, some help. Uh, in offsetting the risk that they were taking on through something called a risk corridor. Yes, payment. let's 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 get to that because you can read okay. together the the co-op issue along yeah. with the commercial payers. So, as you noted, a, a good number, approximately half of the co-ops, uh, left the market largely because of this risk corridor issue, yep. which generally means that if claims exceed a certain corridor. The federal government would help uh, insurers in that they would provide them some end-of-year monies because, of course, when you're insuring a new population, you basically have no idea what premiums to charge. So this is sort of a mechanism uh, to provide guardrails for and to encourage, obviously, carriers to participate in the market. So what's happened now, and this, of course, gets into the presidential election relative to what Marco Rubio said or not. But if you could generally explain what the risk corridor does and what the federal policy decision has been, particularly since it's now an issue in the budget that the Congress just passed. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so y y you hit the nail on the head. Um, and, and, and I should also say that um, there are risk, there is a risk corridor program in um, the Medicare program to, for the same exact reason. And actually, that's a permanent program. And uh, to, you know, to try to um, provide those guardrails to, and get plans to continue to participate with Medicare. Um, and and um, in the case of the Affordable Care Act, um, the risk corridor program is a temporary program. It's only three years. Um, but it, it, it was designed knowing that the insurance companies would be asked to come in, take all comers, so they can no longer reject people based on their health status, um, they would have no data on who these people are, and so it, it, very, very difficult to price for that. Um, the risk corridor program, along with a couple of other premium stabilization programs, was really designed to sort of provide comfort to the carriers to say, look, you know, come in, participate, price your plans competitively. Um, and in many cases, um, it, the risk corridor program gave companies an incentive to price their plans lower than they otherwise would have on the promise that if you take a real hit, like big losses, because you, you take on more sick people than you expected, um, we will, we, the government will be there to, to help, help you out. So essentially it's, 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 it's the idea is that it should be budget neutral so that there were some, if, if you have losses below a certain amount, or I'm sorry, losses above a certain amount, um, the government will make those up and pay those to you. But if you have profits above a certain amount, then you have to pay into the pot. Of course, what happened um, in 2014 is that there were way more carriers with losses uh, than with profits. And um, in Congress at the end of 2014, passed a, a law saying that the risk corridor program had to be budget neutral within 2014. So um, when the federal government got the data from the insurance companies so it's showing that there were way more losses than profits, um, in order to maintain budget neutrality, they were only able to pay 12.6 cents on the dollar. Or the money, the yeah, the money they collected. Right. Uh, so the government wanted to actually pay it in full, possibly late, but they would actually 
have to deficit spend that money. And that's when the presidential campaign got wind of this. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, well, the unfortunate thing with this is that, frankly, the, the big insurance companies, um, you know, they can ride this thing out. Um, they are not dependent on the risk corridor money. They, you know, they're they're actually somewhat ironically, their government business is pretty profitable. So whether that's Medicaid, Medicare, that kind of business. Um, so the big guys are are going to be fine. They will ride this out. What what the what the provision did on risk corridors is really screw over the little guys. Um, the, the co-ops, co-ops for sure. But also um, smaller plans um, that that aren't as diversified and didn't have as as fat of a cushion um, to ride it out as you know some of these big Blue Cross Blue Shield plans or um, you know the the um, big national plans. So um, you, you, you know um, it, ultimately, I think it's going to end up resulting in higher premiums and probably more consolidation in the industry um, as the little guys either drop out or get bought up. Which is to say it undermines competition. It does, yes. Interesting how these all uh, all these issues interrelate. Uh, let me just ask, we have time for one uh, final quick question. So there's always the issue you can provide people coverage, but what does that mean relative to their access? So is there any research showing that despite expanded coverage or more people insured, uh, they're still able to get timely access? Oh, I'm so glad you asked that question because um, there has been so much focus um, lately on how many are enrolled, how many are getting coverage. And um, that is important, and it's a really important metric to track. But um, to me, ultimately, um, you know, we should be assessing the Affordable Care Act long term over whether people actually get and stay healthier um, and are more financially secure. Um, and I, I, I think the jury is still out on that one. Um, we are seeing in the marketplace plans um, much narrower provider networks, certainly than than we have seen in, in traditional employer-sponsored plans. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that people don't have the access they need. It just means that they may not have the choice that people do get used to in, in employer-sponsored plans. Um, but there has been some somewhat disturbing evidence that, for example, um, some of these marketplace plans don't include any of certain kinds of special specialty providers, um, which is, of course, <laughs> a little bit alarming um, uh, and uh, something that I, I, I think that um, both state and federal regulators are, are starting to take note of, and there's been some pushback um, to try to um, put some firmer standards in to make sure that these provider networks are actually able to meet people's needs. Um, the other big concern is um, the kind of cost-sharing that people face when they buy these plans. Um, some some of these deductibles are as high as five, six thousand um, dollars. And you know, frankly, moderate income person, you you, you know, you might as well ask them to fly to the moon as as to pay a six thousand dollar deductible. Um, so I think there's been some frustration with that. Um, uh, it, it, you know, in terms of what do you mean? I'm paying this month a month in premium, and and yet I still am not getting the care that I need. I'm still going to pay out of pocket for the care that I need. So. Um, there, there's also been a real push um, 
to try to get more services covered pre-deductible. So right now you get all your preventive care free pre-deductible. Um, but um, I think there's a lot of interest. And actually, frankly, a, a number of plans do actually cover some amount of primary care and even in some cases some generic drugs or, or urgent care before the deductible. And um, I think if, if we could expand that without having too much of an effect on premiums, um, I think that would be a nice balance to get to. Okay, Sabrina. Well, this has been a whirlwind uh, conversation <laughs> on a subject that has many components to it, but I thank you for your time and providing an overview. Very appreciative. My pleasure, and uh, happy holidays to you. Thank you again. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intracasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.